Well, good morning. If you're, uh, if you're newer to PMC, you may have noticed that we're a church with two very different modes. We have a summer mode and then a not summer mode. And uh, on the Sunday after Labor Day, this place is, always feels very different. Uh, summer mode will have ended and folks will be back from vacation. School will have begun. And this fall, we'll return to having Sunday school here at PMC again. And I'm looking forward to Sunday school. Uh, I'm looking forward to sitting with our high school kids and having discussions about faith. One of the biggest influences in my own life of faith has been hanging around teenagers. And here's why. For the most part, uh, adolescents don't put up with stuff that's fake. And uh, they have a unique way of sniffing out the spin. They question things. It's their superpower. Do you know how hard it is to, to write a sermon when they're the audience in, in your head? It's a lot of hitting the backspace muttering, you know that's not true. So, but while we're talking about our teenagers, I might as well tell you that a significant number of them also have a small drug problem, meaning that the first choice on Sunday morning is not to come here. They are drug here by their parents. So uh, I know that when I walk into that room upstairs on the first day of Sunday school this fall, not only am I going to be faced with people who are highly suspicious of all of this church faith stuff, but they probably don't want to be there in the first place. And you might think I'm painting a grim picture, and I would be, except for one thing. These kids are the funniest, the smartest, the most compassionate, and the most welcoming group of kids that you're ever going to meet. And if you doubt it, you can just ask Barry or Melissa or Bob or Deb or Don or Heidi, Stephen, Andrew, people that hang out with them. And they'll confirm that we have great kids here at PMC. So on that first day of Sunday school, I plan to give a little speech, which is the same speech that I've given to our youth since I got here. I'm going to ask them if they are willing to create a space with me where we can trust each other enough to be our true selves. <clears throat> a place where we can be honest about what we think and feel about God. And we'll go over terms like atheist and agnostic to make space for those of us who want to be part of the conversation but don't want to be fake about where we're coming from. And I encourage the reality that these terms are like clothes. You can wear one moment and you can switch it out for something else in the next. Discovering our relationship to the God stuff is dynamic. It's not supposed to be a static decision. So I hope that this is, in this spirit is, what, is how you hear my thoughts uh, this morning. This is not a sermon that gives the last word uh, it's a snapshot of my dynamic understanding of what it means to be a Jesus follower. This summer, we've been using the theme, Come to the Water. 
It comes from a summer worship resource provided by the denomination and it explores a variety of texts uh, that have images of water in them. And the title given in the resource for today's service is Crossings, as you heard. And it uses a text from Joshua which tells the story of the Israelites rallying around their new leader, Joshua, after Moses dies and making the final push into the Promised Land. Once again, miraculously crossing through a body of water on dry ground, and this time the Jordan River. What sermon would you write with that as your text? Would you pick up on the themes of crossing from one place to another, maybe talk about things we need to leave behind, things we need to take with us, uh, the hopes of, where, of what might be where we're going? There's images of building monuments with stones. Maybe you'd choose to talk about marking moments in your life that you're grateful for, a time when you felt God was faithful. I suppose there's lots of ways you could craft a sermon about out of Joshua leading a group of wandering immigrants who've escaped oppression in Egypt, miraculously crossing a river with God's help and getting to the promised land. But I happened to reread the entire book of Joshua this week, and I can't bring myself to preach any of that. And I know that our teenagers would find it inappropriate for me to do so if they read Joshua with me. I grew up going to Sunday school and learning these stories. Maybe you did as well. I was taught as a child to identify with the people walking across Jordan's strangely dry riverbed, the benefactor of a miracle. I grew up learning deep down in my being that I too was part of God's chosen people. When later in the story the trumpets were blown outside of Jericho, I was one of the marchers blowing my own trumpet. I was not on the other side of the wall. I don't remember one time in my childhood of anyone telling me this story from the vantage point of a child already living in Canaan, playing in the courtyard of her home, watching with wonderment and fear at the advancing Israelites. I was taught to ignore, to simply not think about the horrible, murderous, bloody story that unfolded for this child and everything that she loved. Here's the dilemma. As Anabaptists, we value the biblical text. I value the biblical text. But many of us these days confuse valuing the biblical text with biblicism. It's an approach which makes the Bible itself a sacred symbol or thing. Within this framework, readers will try to make every character in the Bible, in the biblical text, into a, into a spiritual hero, as long as they're written into the text as being on God's side. And preachers will twist themselves into knots to make sure that what the Bible is saying is something edifying. I don't think that as Anabaptists 
this is a faithful way to read the biblical text. And this morning, I hope, I hope you'll hear me as I attempt to illustrate what I'm talking about. A guiding principle for Anabaptists has been that while we value the Bible, it must be read through the lens and the words and life of Jesus. And biblical interpretation must come from God's Spirit working in community. Now, we are, a, we are at a moment in our nation's history where Christian nationalism has become a loud and a clanging voice in our Twitter feeds and on the evening news. And I don't know how you process all of this, but for me, there are many moments where I don't want to be called a Christian anymore because the baggage behind that identity has become so toxic. It can feel like what we're experiencing is a new rising phenomenon. But maybe it's just a very, very old struggle to understand the heart of God. In his book, Come Out My People, God's Call Out of Empire in the Bible and Beyond, West Howard Brook identifies this struggle and he gives it a name. Howard Brook helps us read the biblical text through new eyes and identifies what he calls two competing religions. The religion of creation and the religion of empire. He writes that the religion of creation is grounded in the experience of and the ongoing relationship with the creator God. A religion of creation is about having our human identity intertwined with a God that is a source of blessing and abundance for all people and all of creation. It's a religion that celebrates all of life. The religion of empire, on the other hand, claims to be grounded in that same God, but it's actually a human invention used to justify attitudes and behaviors that provide blessing and abundance for some at the expense of others. It is a religion of greed and self-centeredness. Our text today sits inside a biblical story told firmly inside the religion of empire. Here's the way the book of Joshua opens. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised to Moses from the wilderness in the Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea to the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the, all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. And then the story goes on. It goes on 
to imagine a God, imagine God as a warrior with the flaming sword who relishes in war and the complete, and if you read it, I mean complete extermination of his enemies. It is a foundational image of God. Yes, it's in the Bible. It is a foundational image of God for everything from the Crusades to the doctrine of discovery to the ideas of manifest destiny that lie at the birth of the state of Oregon itself. It is in the Proud Boys and the replacement theories of the white nationalists. It is in American exceptionalism and rhetoric that claims this country to be a city on a hill. It, it feels like it's everywhere. It's because it is. We live in an empire, and the religion of empire is our first language. The sickness inside Christianity is empire. And let me tell you, our kids can smell it. And it's the primary reason that many of them want nothing to do with it. Now, it's tempting at a moment like this to place ourselves once again on the right side of this story. Yes, we know the world is full of bad ideas, evil ideas, but we're not part of that. That's not who we are. But let me ask you just a few questions from my own faith journey. Questions that I wrestle with from my own faith formation. And I ask you these questions because maybe some of them are relevant for you as well. What are your Sunday school answers to some of the following questions? Why do you want to become a Christian? The answer I grew up with was, because I want to go to heaven, and I don't want to go to hell. It's an answer that's infected by the religion of empire. It's self-serving. It's selfish. It saves me from punishment, and it gets me a reward. Why did Jesus die on the cross? My Sunday school answer was, he died to save me from my sins. Did I learn that the answer was to save creation, to, to bring wholeness and shalom to all things? Eventually, but not in Sunday school. What was I taught about miracles? What did Jesus, why did Jesus feed the 5,000? Was it because people were hungry? I don't remember that being the answer. I remember it being that Jesus had superpowers and that he was my Jesus, and he lived in my heart. And that meant that my personal savior, Jesus Christ, was superior and powerful. And that superiority and that power could become part of my identity. What was I taught about non-believers? They were wrong. I was right. I was part of this small, 
chosen club, and I should look with pity, if not disdain, on those outside of the club. That's what I remember as a child from Sunday school. If we think realities like white supremacy and entitlement in our society isn't rooted in what we learned in Sunday school, I think we're being naive. And if we're going to talk about crossings this morning, it needs to be about leaving the religion of empire behind and planting ourselves firmly in the new ground of a religion of creation. Howard Brook makes the compelling case that Jesus was firmly planted in the religion of creation. The good news that Jesus was proclaiming wasn't a new idea, but rather a call to rediscover God's purpose. His life and words were often a rebuke to the stories in his own tradition where the religion of empire had distorted the true image of God. Jesus was rooted in an ancient purpose for humanity. Howard Brook puts it this way. Jesus was proclaiming that God's purpose was the bringing forth of a people whose lives would be a light for others to show them how to live in true harmony, to show them how to live in shalom with God, one another, and all of creation. Becoming a light that spreads shalom in a world that only knows empire is hard. It requires selflessness. It requires painful self-reflection and self-awareness. It requires compassion. And it requires a vision to know how things are supposed to be. But if we can create a space where we can be our true selves, where we can do this work together and not feel like we're doing it alone, then perhaps we'll discover that we have found joy and laughter along the way. Perhaps we'll discover we've made new friends. Thanks to a bunch of teenagers, <laughs> I know that's possible. So, may we all have enough faith, enough love, and enough hope for the journey. Because somehow, some way, I want to live on the other side. And I want you all to cross over there with me. Amen.